Well, uh, if you're new, friends, we're going through the book of Kings, uh, the book of Kings. And by the way, if you don't have one of the sermon cards, there's some here in the front in the back. You can grab those and then you'll know what passage is going to be preached the next week. And all we're doing, we're just going line after line, chapter after chapter, working our way right through it. And the great part about consecutive exposition, which is what that is, the great thing about that is it forces the preacher to deal with stuff he wouldn't otherwise choose. Uh, one of those things is First Kings 14 to 16. Um, so... But let me just sort of set the scene for us because we've been out of it for a couple weeks uh, before the events of First Kings 14 to 16. By the way, if you're not new, if you are new to the Bible, this is long before the coming of Christ. So we're anticipating his arrival. But before the events of First Kings 14, 15 and 16, uh, we read about the then united nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. And there in the book of Deuteronomy, they're getting ready. The nation of Israel is getting ready to cross the Jordan to go over into the land of promise and take up and live in it. And so um, amidst all of that, uh, they had just been delivered, uh, well, about 40 years before, had been delivered from the nation of Egypt by the mercy of God, by the blood of an unblemished lamb. Uh, they had been given uh, leaders in Moses and Aaron. God had been with them. God had given him his law. And he was about to bless them, Israel. He was about to bless them with a fully, uh, fully furnished, extravagant home in the land of promise. And it was upon that kind of uh, ethos, upon that time, as it were, when Israel was getting ready to go in, that Moses gave them some directions. He says to them, all right, once you cross over the Jordan, I want you guys to split up and take up residence on two mountains. Half of you go to Mount Ebal, half of you go to Mount Gerizim. And what he said was, is after he reviewed the law, he said, go into the, cross the Jordan, get up on these two mountains in one, one mountain, the mountain of Ebal was the mountain of cursing. And the other mountain, Mount Gerizim, was the mountain of blessing. And Moses said, when you get in there, say to all the people on Mount Ebal, that's Israel. If you don't follow the Lord's commands, you're cursed. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say amen. So you've got this living illustration. You're on Ebal. You don't follow the word of the Lord. When you go in here, curse it. Then Moses says, but then once you get in there, the other guys, Mount Gerizim, if you do, if you follow the word of the Lord, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be like those on Mount Gerizim. Moses says in Deuteronomy, he says, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field and all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by my, by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. If you obey the commands of the Lord, that's Deuteronomy 28. So you got two mountains, two destinies. They decide which one they're going to choose to follow. And of course, Moses already prophesies they're going to follow the line of Mount Ebal under the cursing. I want to be clear. There's two mountains. There wasn't a third mountain. No in-between kind of mountain. One or the other. Either they will be Mount Ebal and be cursed, or they will be Mount Gerizim and be blessed. And the deciding factor, Moses tells us, will be, will they believe the Lord? Will they trust the Lord as evidenced by their following the Lord's commands? Or will they uh, reject the Lord and therein follow the laws of other false gods in the land around them? Kings is showing us the answer to that question of Mount Ebal and Gerizim. And what Kings is showing us is, again, just as Moses prophesied, these Israelites are going to follow the gods that were around them and not follow the God that loved them. This morning, the cursed predictions of Mount Ebal continue as we move deeper into the darkness of Israel's history. Kings is not only answering, though, who Israel becomes, but it's also most fundamentally answering who will be the answer to David's God's promise to David. Kings is answering, who does Israel become? But it's also Kings is answering, who's going to be the beloved son of David that will rule on the throne of Israel in the fear of the Lord forever? Who's that son going to be? Who's that king going to be? That's what Kings is doing. Who does Israel become? Who's going to be the answer to the Davidic covenant? We thought it might be Solomon, right? A few weeks back. Started really good, but instead of loving the Lord, he learned to love many women and fell away, worshiping other gods and leading Israel to do the same. The Lord then promised, if you recall, judgment upon uh, Solomon's house. And so when Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, comes to power. He then gets heavy handed with the people of Israel. And then the nation of Israel divides. 
10 tribes go to the northern tribe known as Israel. The other two tribe, Benjamin and Judah, they kind of stay. That's the southern kingdom. And so after this, Rehoboam's in power. Then this in Judah. And then in the other kingdom, Israel, this guy by the name of Jeroboam, he rises to power as king of the 10 tribes of Israel. And he, Jeroboam, quickly creates his own kind of accommodating Christianity, which led Israel further into the darkness. And that, friends, is where we left it. This divided Israel. The nation of Israel is divided with two foolish kings. And today, over the course of our time, we will encounter some 11 different kings that only span some 50 years after the death of Solomon. All but one of them will lead God's people further up Mount Ebal towards cursing, rejecting the Lord's command. Which begs the question, here's the question I want you to think about, which begs the question that we've been asking throughout this series, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? We might say, who are we, Restoration Church? Who are we becoming? Who are we becoming? So that question will be answered by who you follow. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm just going to walk through these three chapters. Then I'll get to some application for us. But as I do, I want to keep these two questions at the forefront of your mind. One, what Keynes is doing. Who's the son of David that's going to rule on the throne of David forever? And then secondly, who are you following? And what are you becoming? Those two questions. I want you to keep those two things in mind. Here we go. The story again picks up where we left it off in chapter 13. We begin right here in chapter 14 with the wicked king of Jeroboam ruling the northern tribes. All right. Jeroboam. We're picking up the story. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, arise and disguise yourself that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over his people, over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. All right, so this is typical of Jeroboam, right? What we've come to know about him. Twisting the truth in order to get something out of somebody else in order to serve himself twisting the truth to get something out of somebody else for himself this is what he does jeroboam so he's sending his wife on under disguise to see what's going to happen to his sick child but we read that the lord visits ahijah the prophet in verse five and he lets him know what's about to go down so jeroboam's wife she shows up she's all disguised but of course ahijah though he is visually impaired which reminds us of some stories of Jacob, doesn't it? But nevertheless, she shows up. Ahijah's there, visually com- uh, visually impaired. Uh, but when she walks into the door, Ahijah knows exactly who she is. He's prepared for this moment. And we get ready for this judgmental prophecy that Ahijah gives to Jeroboam's wife. Here it is, verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me back. And cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel. And will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, and the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of this good land. That he gave to their fathers and scattered them beyond the Euphrates because they made their ashering. 
provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Four themes in that passage. Four themes there that will be representative of the rest of the narrative, things to look for. First thing, first theme that we see in that passage that will be representative is this theme of judgment. Judgment on Jeroboam and his house because of the way that Jeroboam did not obey as David did, but instead rejected the Lord by rejecting his commands and worshiping other gods. And yet we see there this kind of strange mercy that the Lord gives to Jeroboam's son by taking his life early so as to not expose him to the forthcoming wrath that will come upon Jeroboam's family. So first thing there is judgment on Jeroboam and his house for the ways that Jeroboam has cast be the Lord behind his back. Judgment. Second theme to be looking for there, judgment on kings for not only their sin, but how they made Israel to sin. It's a second theme, how they made Israel to sin. You can see that ver there in verse 16. And I want to be clear about something. When it says made Israel to sin, that doesn't mean that the, that the kings are out there saying, you know, you need to follow these other gods. And Israel is over there going like, no, 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 we don't want to. We want to follow the Lord. You know, and they're like, no, 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 you're going to have to serve other gods. That's not what's happening. Right? Israel is happy, sadly, to serve other gods. So what it means when it says that he made Israel to sin, what it means there is that the kings are providing a kind of environment where rebellion was normalized, where sin was normalized. When it was common and easy for you to reject the Lord's clear commands and take up following the gods that were around them. That's what he means. Jeroboam is accountable for the ways that he led Israel into darkness. And we should note too something interesting about that phrase made Israel to sin. That phrase is used 20 times in the Bible. Made Israel to sin. 20 times. All 20 times are in the book of Kings alone. All 20 times in the book of Kings alone. And six of those 20 times are used in these three chapters. That's almost a a third of that phrase is used in these three chapters, indicating the speed and the descent of Israel. But friends, it's important to see there is not only judgment on the kings for their false worship, but also for the way that they led Israel as a whole to rebel against God. And the people themselves deserve judgment for their failure to live inside of the blessing of the Lord's words. Remember, the Lord told them to not do this. So it's not as though they didn't know. The Lord warned them not to do this. So they are going to be held accountable for their disobedience. And so as a result, we see this prophecy in verse 15, referencing the northern tribes of Israel. He says, the Lord says he's cutting off Israel and is going to scatter them beyond the Euphrates River. A promise, by the way, that will be fulfilled later in the book of Kings. Once again, we'll get there maybe next March or so. You'll see. So don't forget. Come back there. Right. And by the way, this is another example, just like Adam and Eve rejected the Lord's words and were exiled from Eden. So in the same way, you see as Israel rejecting the Lord's words, and now they're going to go be rejected and sent outside of the land themselves. But the third theme that is, going to be, that is repeated throughout these chapters and is seen here is this notion of provoking the Lord to anger. Provoking the Lord to anger. Provoking them to the anger of the Lord because of their sin. You'll see that language nine times used in these three chapters alone. And so the language of provoking the anger of the Lord is meant to contrast itself, guys, with the Lord's slowness to anger, right? Exodus 34, the Lord describes himself, says that he's slow to anger. The Lord has has this reputation in our culture that in the Old Testament, he's like this quick, really quick wrath guy, right? In the New Testament, he's really patient and kind. And friends, that's simply not the case if you take the time to study the Bible. It is not true at all. Anyone that actually takes the time to read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, would see that the Lord is indeed slow to anger as he says he is in the Old Testament. And when his anger comes, by the way, it is justifiable. And it is slow as evidenced by the fact that it has to be provoked. In other words, it's not quick. So let me give you an example of this. I want you to imagine for a minute that you uh, have a family and you have a couple kids and you go over to a friend's house and you walk over to that house and when you walk in the door, you see that they have a dog and they tell you, they see the dog and the kids, your kids are kind of standing and they say, well, don't worry about the dog. The dog's friendly. The dog's kind. He's nice. He's good with kids. You say, great. So you don't worry about anything. But then your kids, they walk over to the dog and then they start slapping the dog on the head. 
And they start barking at the dog and they start slapping the dog and throwing things at the dog and sitting on the dog. And the dog amazingly takes it for five or ten minutes until eventually what does the dog do? Bite him back, right? And we would understand if the dog were to then do that or bark at the kids, we would all understand the problem was not with the dog. We would understand that the, the person's words that the dog was nice was not wrong. We would understand that the kids were wrong for provoking the dog's anger. That's what's going on here in this passage. It's what we see in the Old Testament time and again, right? They lose sight, these Israelites. We actually lose sight of the contextual realities that Israel is time and again doing, namely provoking to the Lord, broking the Lord's anger with their sin. The Lord was incredibly merciful and incredibly patient with Israel. But when year after year, decade after decade of kings and people rejecting God and his commands, it's like kicking the loving dog. Right? The Lord is going to have to bite back in order to make them see. You cannot misrepresent the name of the Lord among the nations, and you cannot continue leading others into this darkness. And this is what most all these forthcoming kings will do. By following these false gods and leading others in the same, they will provoke the Lord's anger. And so God's going to judge because the kings made Israel to sin and their own sin. And third, they're provoking the otherwise Lord's slowness to anger. And then fourth theme that we see here is when the Lord judges and promises his anger, we find his word is true. That's the fourth theme. His word is true. His word is faithful. His word comes to pass. His word is reliable. You can see that in the merciful death of the son. She walks into the city and the child died, just as he just said he would. But then pick up on those words in verse 18. Because they get repeated six times in these three chapters. See it there in verse 18, according to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. So the kings are failures because they don't trust the Lord by obeying the word of the Lord. And yet the author of kings is highlighting that while these words of the kings fail, the words of God don't fail. The author wants you to see that. Trust the Lord by obeying the Lord's word and find life. Follow these words of the kings that are failures and you'll find death. The author's trying to provoke our confidence in the word of the Lord. And so judgment against idolatry, the people being led to sin, the provoking of the Lord's anger and the faithfulness of the Lord's word amidst all of this. These four themes play out in all these other stories that I'll move a bit more quickly through. So go ahead and look at there at verse 19 of chapter 14. Jeroboam, we see, dies there. Nadab, his son, becomes uh, into power. He becomes king of the northern tribes, the king, kingdom of Israel. That then leads to the final words on Rehoboam. Remember, he's the king. He's Solomon's son of king of Judah. And we learn in verse 22 that Judah is doing evil to the Lord, which again provokes the Lord's anger. And we learn about some of the particulars that Rehoboam is leading in of his sin. They got male cult prostitutes. I don't know what that is, but it sounds terrible, right? It sounds awful. Male cult prostitutes moving in and around the nation of Judah. And perhaps the most cutting words of all. Take a look at verse 24. The most cutting words of all. A description of Judah. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Let me read that again. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Guys, not even 50 years have passed since Solomon prayed that beautiful prayer and the temple was dedicated. Not even 50 years. And they are no different than the very same people that they were to move in and drive out. They're just like them. It's been a single generation. It's so sad. This quick spiral down. The Lord loved Israel like a faithful husband. He gave them everything, most especially his own presence. He was very clear about what makes their marriage good. He warned them about what makes it bad. He, he made that way of covenantal blessing clear. And in a generation, they were no different than the people that they drove out. And we ask, why? How did that happen? Because kings led them to start following the same gods that they were living around. They conformed to the pattern of false worship that they lived around. 
Even though the Lord had chosen to love them and bless them and even warn them. They followed the gods around them. So sad. Chapter 14 finishes up with a testimony of Egypt. Now they, they come up and they take away all those golden treasures of the temple. Remember when we went through all that golden stuff right a month ago, we were walking all those different golden things taken away. Egypt just comes on up and takes it away. Rehoboam then makes some less valuable replacements of bronze, but even we learned that he even has to guard those things that he makes. In other words, what the author seems to be indicating is that that peace, remember when they had that peace all around them when they did the temple? Now that's eroding. Now you've got Egypt just coming in and doing what they want. And there we learn another repeated phrase in these passages. Look at verse 30. That there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. So not only do you have male cult, male cult prostitutes, not only do you have nations coming in and taking up things, things that God made good away, not only do you have this false worship going on, but now, and not only were they divided, but now they're fighting each other. Continually. Chapter 15, we learn of Rehoboam's son, Abijam. He comes to power to lead Judah. He's no, no surprise. He's no different than his dad. He walks in sin. But we get a little bit of a glimmer of hope in verse 4. I'm going to come back to that. But we lead, learn there in chapter 15, Abijam only reigns for three years and dies. And then his son, Asa, comes into power. And Asa, he was the man. He was a good king. One of the few. By the way, if you're wondering, all the kings of Israel, bad dudes. Judah gets a handful of good ones. Here's one of the good ones. He reigns for 41 years, longer than both Solomon and David. Third longest reign uh, in all of all the long, uh, kings of Judah. We read of Asa there in verse 11, uh, verse 11 of chapter 15. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David, his father, had done. There's the clarity of who and what you ought to be. You should be like David. We find that he gets rid of Asa, gets rid of the male cult prostitutes. He removes all the idols. He kicks his mom out of queen mother and burns her picture. How about that, moms? And this dude was committed, right? Verse 13, he cuts down some image of her and burns it. I love it. Dudes, yeah, you're out, mom. (laughs) Good for him. Look at verse 15. We find that Asa brings some silver and the gold back into the temple. It's good, but, but, but we also learn in verse 14, the high places, that's a phrase, every time you read the Old Testament, guys, bracket that. Verse 14, the high places are not taken away. That's a clue from the author. That signals us to the fact that while Asa was a good king, it signals us to the fact that he's not going to be the true forever king of David. And we also remember that little line signals us to the fact, remember that prophecy, flip back to chapter 13, verse 2. Remember, there was a prophecy there that the guy that's going to bring the full reform was king. Anybody remember this? Josiah. So that tells us it's not going to be Asa. Remember, we ha- we're waiting on this guy by the name of Josiah to come and bring reform. But maybe, jo- maybe Josiah is going to be the servant king of David. He, maybe, maybe Josiah is going to be the king that will reign forever. No, not, not him. Anyway, get ahead. All right, come back. Anyway, back to King Asa. Civil war going on between... Uh, Judah and Israel, and in verse 16 to 23, we learn that Asa strikes a deal with the king of Syria, all right? So you got kind of Judah is over here, you got northern tribes over here, and on the other side is Syria, all right? And remember, Judah and Israel fighting each other. Well, uh, what Asa does is he strikes a deal with the king of Syria. He gives them some cash, you know, as it were. He gives them some silver and gold, and he has them. He kind of buys them out to stop warring against him, and instead, he pays king of Syria to start warring against Israel. Now, look what happens. This is genius of Asa. They're building, Israel is building this little little city by the name of Ramah on the border between Judah and Israel. And so what he does is he gets the king of Syria. You start attacking them. So as soon as that happens, the Israelites there in the northern kingdom are like, well, we got to stop fighting Judah for a little bit. We got to go take care of this other border. And when they do, they leave all of the supplies that they were building the city of Ramah. They just leave it out in the open. And so Asa basically sends an email out and says, hey, free Home Depot supplies, come and get it. And they do. That's exactly what happens. They just go and then they take all his building supplies and the people take it. It's great. Now, why is the author telling us? I think the author is telling us, here's an example of a good king that's obeying the Lord. He's getting rid of false worship and he's finding peace just like we saw in David. 
But this is not the king that we're meant to look for. Asa dies. Go back over to the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, Jeroboam's son, Nadab, he comes to power. Verse 26, no surprise, he does what is evil. He makes Israel to sin. Nadab, this dude, Nadab, reigns two years when this dude by the name of Basha goes in and straight up kills Nadab, all right? Uh, look at verse 29. Hey, by the way, this dude, Basha, kills not only Nadab, but he kills the rest of Jeroboam's house. Look at verse 29. This fulfills the promise that Ahijah made to Jeroboam's wife. Y'all remember that? Basha, this guy that kills Nadab in uh, Jeroboam's house, he reigns for 24 years. No surprise, he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. He makes Israel to sin as well. Therefore, that leads us then into chapter 16. But just as we would expect, the Lord gives a word to this guy by the name of Jehu against Basha for his bad actions and bad worship. Jehu tells Basha, again, if you're looking for if you're looking for names for your kids, there's tons of them here, all right? So good, Basha, little Basha, hey, little Basha. Uh, Jehu, he tells Basha on behalf of the Lord, I let you come to power and you led my people to sin. Look at that in verse two. My people, you see, do you feel the disdain of the Lord? He's telling, he's telling Basha, I led you into power, even though you killed people, I'll come back to that in a second. I led you to power, and then once you get into power, you're ruling over my people. And this is what you do to my people? No, sir. But look back there at verse, actually, back up a little bit. What the Lord says there, the Lord then says through Jehu to Basha, you and your house are going to go down just like Jeroboam and his house. In other words, judgment. Slide down to verse 11 to 13, you see the judgment on Basha's house. We see, the, we see the word of the Lord proves true. Justice on the house of Basha does come to fruition. Look at it, verse 12, according to the word of the Lord. Again, the author wants to build your confidence in the word. But look back up there in verse 7, chapter 16. Sorry, yes, yeah, 16. This is an interest, interesting verse. Speaking of the judgment the Lord gives Basha, it says, listen to this, both because of all the evil that he did. So here's the judgment coming on Basha in his house. Both because of all the evil that he did on the side of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam. And also because he destroyed it. Judgment because of what he did and judgment because he destroyed Jeroboam and his house. In other words, the Lord not only judged Basha and his house for participating in the same idolatry, leading Israel to do the same, but also the Lord judges Basha's judgment on Jeroboam's house. Now you're asking, well, how in the world does that work? Great question. Once again, friends, what we have here is a beautiful testimony. Once again, the sovereign Lord is using the pre-existing evil desires of Basha to facilitate his judgment without having the Lord to do the judgment himself. So in this way, what happens is this is the beauty and the consistency of the Lord, which is unlike any other so-called God that you read about in any other so-called holy book. The Lord is just, and like any good judge, he gives a penalty for the crime. And the way in which he executes it, he uses other people, bad people, to do his work so that he doesn't do the evil himself, which preserves his holiness and his goodness while still bringing judgment upon the earth. And so the Lord doesn't judge evil with more evil, in other words. But he uses the evil desires of people to accomplish his righteous, righteous purpose, purposes. This is the beauty of the sovereign God that is holy and good. It's amazing how he's able to do this. The God who is holy and does no evil and yet uses evil for his own purposes in order to bring about his good and righteous purposes. Same thing that we read about, by the way, in Joseph, in Genesis 50. Remember what he said? What you intended for evil, God did for good. Only God can do that because only God is perfectly and consistently good and holy. Take a look at verse 15. We see there the Lord's word confirmed in the judgment of Basha's house. Uh, Basha's son, Elah, he rises to power and gets killed by a military leader. It's like a, uh, like a lieutenant. He's not even the chief guy. A military leader by the name of Zimri comes in and kills Elah when Elah's sitting at home drunker than a skunk. I can't make this stuff up. Anybody that says the Bible's boring is not reading it. 
All right. Dude's sitting in there and they're drunk. Zimri rolls in, kills the guy. He brings about the judgment that was prophesied on the house of Basha. But then this lieutenant leader guy, Zimri, he kills Eli, right? But then the rest of the army hears about this and they think, well, we don't want like a lieutenant of the army to be the king. We want the main general leader of the army to be the king. So that's the guy by the name of Omri. So they're like, we want him to be king. So Israel then declares Omri to be king of Israel. Zimri hears about this, that now Omri is going to be king, not him. So what does uh, Zimri do but go over to Eli's house, the king's house, the old king's house, and probably knowing the fate that is coming upon him, he goes inside the middle of the king's house and lights the whole thing on fire while he sits inside of it, committing suicide. His reign lasted a week. Omri is now king of Israel. But some other Israelites think this random dude, this is so random. Some other folks in there are like, well, let, we like Tibni. Let's let him be king of Israel. So Omri fights him and his folks off. And so down goes King Tibni. And so now we have left with us for the northern tribes. So now Omri is king. And as we learn in verse 25, this dude, Omri, does more evil than all before him. He dies, Omri dies, and he gives rise to his son, whose name is Ahab. And in verse 30, we learn Ahab is even worse than his already terrible dad. Take a look at verse 30 of chapter 16. Speaking of Ahab, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of the Jeroboam of the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. In other words, Ahab goes and boldly marries this gal by the name of Jezebel that is clearly worshipping another god. And I love that language of the text when it says as though it was a light thing. In other words, what the author is saying, he didn't give a rip about the Lord's command. He could care less what God said. I'm going to go marry this girl. I don't care what the Bible says, as it were. Ahab was so wicked, so wicked. And so to close out the chapter, we get one more amazing fulfillment of prophecy. And again, this, this little nugget is thrown in there for one purpose, to build your confidence in the word of the Lord. We look there at the end of the chapter of 16, verse 34. This dude by the name of Heel of Bethel rebuilds the city of Jericho. Now, for those of you that know your stories of the Bible, Jericho was the first city that Israel engaged when they came in. You all know some of y'all, even from childhood. Remember, they circled the city and they blew the horns and down came the walls of Jericho. You probably know a song about that. Well, after that, in Joshua 6, 26, the Lord prophesies anybody that tries to rebuild this city that the Lord took down, they would rebuild it at the cost of their only son. And that's exactly what happened. Why is this here? The author wants to build your confidence in the word of the Lord, not these false kings. His word comes to fruition. Trust it. And now, friends, with all of this, we are teed up for the ministry of Elijah. We'll take a look at him next week, chapter 17. This is the crazy world that Elijah descends upon. And if you're sitting here wondering, some of you are sitting here going, like, what, what just happened in the last 20 minutes, right? If that's you, take heart, right? If you're going, hey, this sounds nuts. This sounds crazy. This sounds chaotic. This sounds bad. This sounds awful. Yes, that's the point. There we go. Well, Nathan, why didn't you just say that 20 minutes ago? Well, I wanted to get, let the Bible do it first, all right? The whole point of this passage is to make you feel the awfulness of this whole environment. That's the whole point of the author. If you were here back when we went through the book of Judges, you remember that every single week? Like, this is terrible. Right, that's the point. Don't do it. So many people forget the fact that so much of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is a cautionary tale. The author wants you to feel this is not right. Outside of, the, outside of the good king of Asa, the people of God are living in full rebellion. Civil war is raging. Idolatry is all around. So is sexual immorality. Kings are leading their people to love God, and they don't even care about what God says anymore. 
The people are glad to follow these wicked kings and not slowly, but quickly Israel. And as we see Judah as well is turning out more like Sodom and Gomorrah. And all of this happened again, guys, in about 50 years. A generation. And we ask again, why? Why has it descended this far this fast? Well, practically, kings would tell us because most of the kings of Judah and Israel have led God's people to adopt the worship of the gods that they lived around. Which brings us back to that question that I posed at the very beginning. The question that I think kings constantly keeps asking us, not only who is the son of David that will rule forever, but also who are you becoming? Who are we becoming? Driving that question into your eyes. And the answer is, as we see here, you'll know who you are becoming. You'll know who we are becoming based off of who you are following. Israel was just as bad as the people that were in the land before them. And they got there because of who they listened to, who they loved, who they followed. Not necessarily who they said they loved, but who they actually followed. And they became just like the world, full of darkness, under the curse of God, Mount Ebal. Because of who they followed. That's who they became. So, beloved, who are you following? Who are you listening to? Who are you loving? And where are they taking you? You heard Will pray it a moment ago when we prayed. Both of those questions are important. Who are you following? And where are they taking you? I wonder how you would answer that. A little way to help us think about that question. I, many of you know I'm the, uh, a father of two sons. And, uh, and in that work, my wife and I have a lot of decisions to make about our two sons. Those of you that are parents know this. You're beginning to taste this, some of you. We have a lot of decisions to make about them. Educational decisions, physical decisions, spiritual decisions, all these kinds of, should we send them to that school? Should we homeschool them? Should we, uh, should we get them involved in travel sports? All right. What are the implications there? What, how, how will that affect their friend group and their spiritual group? Are we fitter? Are we feeding them literal junk food? Right. Are we feeding them healthy food? All these decisions all upon us. And there are a thousand other questions that bombard us every single day. How are we going to answer them? So we steward these two kids that God, for some strange reason, gave to us to steward, to help, to grow. And not only do we have a thousand questions, we have one million other voices that are offering plenty of other opinions and suggestions and demands about how we should make those decisions for our kids. Right? Schools have suggestions or demands about what we should do. And the entertainment industry has suggestions or demands. The government has suggestions and demands. My extended family has opinions and demands, right? The collective spirit of the age in D.C. has its own set of suggestions and demands about how I should raise my kids and how I should answer those questions. And those, those questions, by the way, that D.C. would have me to make, isn't this interesting? Those suggestions and demands in D.C. would be different if I was raising my kids in Tulsa, Oklahoma or in Baghdad, Iraq. Isn't that interesting? It's a lot. You can see why parents are freaking out all the time, right? Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Having trouble, right? All these decisions, all these decisions, so many decisions. And all these people trying to press on us, you should do this with your child or that with your child. Now, I want to share with you one thing that has been so helpful to me in raising my two sons. We haven't done it perfectly. We've made our set of mistakes. But one little principle that has helped me that I think matches with King's The most helpful thing I do when I make decisions for my kids, instead of listening to all the noise or even listening to what I want personally, I try to ask myself, what kind of men do I want them to be at 35? So helpful. What kind of men? What kind of men do I want them to be when they're old? When maybe they're going to be taking care of me, right? Maybe they're married. Maybe they're not. What kind of men? Either way, they'll, I want them to, to grow to be men who are making decisions that are good decisions. Right? I want them to grow up to be, I want them at 35 to be godly and humble and hardworking and wise and educated. Wisdom and education are not the same. I want them to be loving. I want them to care for the weak and the downtrodden. I want them to be men that don't just do what everybody else around them is doing. I want them to be, I want them to be men that are full of conviction and of compassion. I want them to be men like that, that are hardworking, that care, that matter. 
And so when I'm confronted with a decision about their lives and what they are becoming, I ask myself, how will this decision that I have to make help them be that at 35? Does that make sense? Will this help them or hurt them to be more like that? And here's why this has been so helpful, which I think connects us back to Kings. We need this crystal clear in your mind who you want to become. It clarifies how you spend your time and your money now. And it clarifies what you do or don't value now. It clarifies what you're becoming. But if it's not clear, if you don't have a clear and compelling vision out in front of you, well, then it's going to be much more difficult. And what winds up happening is, is you'll just do like the rest of the crowd around you. Or worse, you'll just follow your own heart, which is seen as a virtue in our day. Sadly. Israel had kings that were not captured by a clear and compelling vision of the Lord. That was the problem amongst many others, but they didn't have a clear and compelling vision of the Lord. It was not clear to Solomon that the Lord would give him more joy than women would, so he didn't resist them. It was not clear to Jeroboam that the Lord's will and ways would be better than his own will and ways, or he just didn't care, so he just followed his own will and ways, and you saw what he became. It was not clear to Basha that the Lord's commands were for his good, and so he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. None of those kings ever seemed to understand exactly what the Lord told both Jeroboam and Basha in 1 Kings 14.7 and 1 Kings 16.2. They didn't seem to understand when the Lord said, those are my people. I put you in charge of them to lead them towards my ways. They missed that and they screwed everything up. None of those kings seemed to see and savor the beauty of David's leadership. Of Israel. They didn't seem to see that or care. It wasn't clear and compelling to them. They didn't look at David and say, man, I want to to rule like that. I want to live like that. And so they led God's people as though they were their own people. So they had no clear and compelling vision of the Lord. They had only a clear and compelling vision of whatever they wanted to do. And what's worse is the people were more than happy to follow those fools. There was no restraint. No love for God, no love for neighbor. There was only love for what was easy, acceptable, and would keep them in power. That was their vision. And so, beloved, if we are going to learn from the kings of Israel, we are going to have to have a clear and compelling vision of the greatest king of all so that we would grow up into him, our head. Clear vision. Of Christ as beautiful and good king. Clear vision of him. Can't be mushy. Clear and compelling. The Lord held out to these kings their predecessor, King David. He was the ruler. He was the guidepost. He was the 35-year-old man, as it were. The clear and compelling vision. And all but Asa up until now said, nope, not interested. Instead, they made decisions that conformed them to the patterns of the world around them. And all it got those kings was five minutes of satisfaction and an eternity of pain. But God never gave up on his people. Never gave up. That's what kind of king he is. He never stopped loving them even though they stopped loving him. He never stopped loving us even though we, just like Israel, stopped loving him so many times. Like he was faithful to his promises in this passage, he was faithful to the promise to have a king that would one day take the throne of David that would not bow the knee to those around him or even his own will in that sense. This king, Jesus, the true and lasting son of David, when faced with the worst pain possible, prayed, let this cup pass from me, but not what I will, what you will. And in this, Jesus Christ gives us a clear and compelling vision of what true life is. Sacrificial, committed love to the God, the gospel. It's not giving in to the passions of the flesh or conforming to the world around us. It's doing as the Lord instructed these kings from the beginning. It's saying that the Lord is king, not me, not anyone else. He's king. These are my people to steward. 
I'm going to order in that way. He's the king. He's the one that made the world. He's the one that sustains the world. He's the one that's ruling over the world in Christ. And not only that, Jesus, he became flesh, dwelt among us, and embodied a life that conformed to the patterns of heaven while still living on the earth. Wanting us, Jesus the king, wanting us to get inside of those good and gracious commands so much that he bled and died on the cross for all of the times that we failed him. That's how much he wants to get us to get in on his good and gracious command. That he was willing to take up body and soul amongst and live amongst us and teach those commands and live those commands and then die for all of the times that we fail those commands just like Jeroboam. Guys, we are not, we are, we are more like Jeroboam than we are like Asa. And Jesus knows that and willingly the true king of David, son of David. Dies for all of those sins. Raises overcoming them as a satisfaction. Clearly satisfying the penalty for our sin. For those that trust him. So that he might take up his life again. And plead the merits of his blood to the father. In order that the spirit would then descend upon us. And dwell within us. Why? So that we would then love him by obeying him. Right? That's what he said. If you love me, you obey my commandments. I can't do that, Jesus. I know. That's why I died. That's why I'm going up to heaven to pray for you, send the spirit, take up residence. You're the temple now. Now you're able to do it because I did it for you. This is good news. What a king. What a king. Jesus wants us to live on Mount Gerizim. He doesn't want us to live on Mount Ebal like Israel did. To obey him, to love him, and enjoy his good and gracious commands. For he, as Jesus said, as the Lord says, for David's sake, for his own sake, even, can you believe this? For our sake. Christ came into the world to conquer sin and death so that we might no longer have to walk in sin and death anymore. Beloved, Christ is the clear and the compelling vision. He's the one we grow up into, as Colossians teaches us. He is the king that you were made to follow. And if you follow him, you will not be made to sin because Jesus won't do that to you like these bad kings do. His rule will lead you to life. These other kings lead you to death. So follow him. He's the clear and compelling vision. He will make you to live inside of the purpose for which you were made. What more does he have to do to convince you that he's good and gracious and worthy of your trust? So again, I ask that question, beloved, and friend, maybe that's not a Christian. Who are you becoming? You will know by who you're following. And not just by who you say you follow, but how your life seems to wed to that. Look again at who you're following and ask, where are they taking you? What is the good life in their eyes? And does it seem to be giving them and those around them life? And here's the answer, guys. Only Jesus, the true and lasting son of David, the king of kings. He's the only one that is worth following as your Lord and king. And I share with you, beloved, there are two institutions that God built to help you follow him as king. Two. One of which you couldn't choose. It was chosen for you. Your family. And the other institution that he gave to help you follow him as king is the church. The church of Christ. Which would mean... That one of the most one of the most important decisions you will ever make as a Christian is deciding which church you will choose to join with. One of the most important decisions you will ever make, if this idea of following the Lord of His King is right, and these two institutions of family and church, if that institution of church is the thing that is designed to help you follow the Lord as King, Christ as King, if that's true, and it is then the most important decision you will make as a Christian is what church you decide to follow. And the second most important decision you'll make as a Christian is how much will you involve yourself in that church? You could show up in a healthy church, but if you don't involve yourself to it, well, the degree to which you involve yourself with is the degree to which you'll find the life and the joy, the blessing of following Jesus. Beloved, there are a thousand voices in the spirit of Jeroboam and Rehoboam and Basha that are trying to deceive you and me for their purposes, which only lead you and others towards more sin and death. Therefore, you should be so careful about which gospel you believe in, which pastors you submit to, and what members you align yourself with if you are going to become like Christ. Now, in Christ, you are whole, right? You're true. But then from that justification, you work out your salvation, right? And the church is going to help you know what that justification is and then help you to work out that salvation. 
The only other decision as important to that one in your Christian life, again, is knowing how much you involve yourself in the life of that church. Guys, this is not rocket science. I understand there are things that are complicated in the Bible. There are things, but there are a lot of things that God makes that is so clear and so easy. Find a healthy church that preaches the gospel and just get involved with them. And if you don't, people that take the name of Christ, they either don't involve themselves in healthy churches or they go to healthy churches, but they don't involve themselves much at all, they will either stagnate and wither or wither. It's really that simple. And it works that way because that's how the Lord designed it. He's wedded the confession of the gospel and the building of the church in Matthew 16. Look for pastors then that are striving to be conformed to the image of Christ as their king. Look for pastors that understand themselves to be under authority. And then secondly, look for pastors that will unequivocally speak the truth in love to you. And you need both of those. You can find some pastors that will speak to speak to you the truth, but they don't speak it in love, and they're jerks most of the time. Right? And then you can find some pastors that will speak to you in love, but they won't speak the truth to you, and they will deceive you. You need pastors that understand themselves under the authority of Christ as king, and they're laboring to try to speak the truth in love to you. And they warn you when you go off the path. And they encourage you when you're going well in the light. Who are you becoming? Who are we becoming? You'll know by who you follow. And my plead with you this morning is to follow Christ as Lord. And then come up under a healthy church that's trying to help you do that. And you'll become, it won't be easy, but you'll become like one you behold. This vision, this clear and compelling vision of Christ. And then from that, hopefully, you'll endeavor to do the same to each other. And eventually, we'll get home to heaven. And we'll be glad that we gave our all to Christ as king. And we tried to live in faithfulness to his word and not listen to all these false kings. And adopt the false patterns of worship around us. He's a good king. May we give ourselves to him. Let's pray to him now. Father, forgive us for all the ways that we are like these false kings. Forgive us for all the ways that we are like Israel and Judah. Adopting the patterns of worship of those we live around. Thank you, Jesus, that there's more grace in you than there is sin in us. You've shown, you've proven your reliability, your trustworthiness. To follow as king and Lord. And the way that you've given yourself for those sins. And so now, having repented and believed upon you, may we follow you.